Well, have you ever been in the presence of greatness, uh, someone truly great, uh, without even knowing it? Uh, you were totally oblivious to the fact that you were in their presence. Uh, in an ordinary place, uh, but someone extraordinary was there. Well, let me ask it another way. Have you ever been uh, with someone who uh, knew someone extraordinary was there with you, but you were just totally oblivious to the fact that this was someone impressive, someone great, someone famous? Uh, that's happened to me a number of times uh, when Liz and I have been places. I'm a bit dopey. Uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. I remember one example in particular, we used to walk while I was at Bible college along the sort of the, the coastal route of the east coast beaches in Sydney, sort of Bondi, Coogee, all that sort of area. Spectacular walk. Uh, but uh, to, to live there, you basically had to, you know, had to sell your arm and your leg uh, to live on that part of Sydney. So it was a bit of a hub for the great, the famous uh, sort of people of Sydney and so regularly as we go on this walk Liz would point out somebody who was famous or great at something and I would be completely oblivious as we walked past uh, that this was happening. People like uh, Don Fisher from Home and Away, if you're a fan of Home and Away we passed him many a time uh, walking back and forward and I was completely unaware of, that I was in the presence of greatness. <laughs> now greatness can be a debatable title but what if it's someone who is empirically Um, undeniably great and you're there and you totally miss it. Let me give you an example of that uh, from the Washington Post um, a few months ago. The the title of the article was Pearls Before Breakfast. Speaking of a violinist, it says, he emerged from the subway at Le Enfant Plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures he was nondescript a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. And from a small case he removed the violin and placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars as seed money and began to play. It was 7.51am on Friday, January 12. It was the middle of the morning rush hour and in the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people rushed by. Each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in the urban area. Do I stop and listen? No one knew who he was, says the article. But the fiddler standing there was one of the finest classical musicians of all time, playing one of the most elegant pieces of music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made, and no one knew it. Now, uh, I was reading that article, uh, it was shown to me by a friend and uh, I was thinking being a Christian is like that on an infinitesimally greater scale, isn't it? As Christians, we know that the greatest thing that we could possibly offer someone is to introduce them to Jesus, to show them who Jesus is, to show them how magnificent he is. And we do that in all sorts of ways. We might invite them to church and hope that as, as we read the Bible together that they would see Jesus We might have a conversation with them about Jesus, talking about him and about the things that he said, hoping that they would catch a glimpse of who he is or go through a a gospel with them. Now, when those opportunities come along for us in life, how do you go about introducing Jesus? What what sort of angle do you take with uh, unbelieving friends and, and family or colleagues? I imagine that as we explain the wonderful gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus as we show him to be who he really is, the king of this world, as we show them this great treasure that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, our hope 
is that they too will see how wonderful he really is. But what if they don't? What if the gospel isn't enough? What if rather than leading our friends and family to the conclusion that we desperately want them to reach, that's faith in Christ, what if it leads them to being indifferent towards him or confused or angry or to reject him? What then? Well, at the end of John chapter 6, we have a situation just like that. Jesus has declared the good news of the gospel again and again in these earlier chapters perfectly articulated in verse 35 to 40 of chapter 6 that he is the gospel, he is the gospel, the great treasure of this world is Jesus and yet, verse 60, the crowd respond, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And by verse 66, many of the crowd who are there have turned their back and walked away, no longer interested. The bottom has fallen out of Jesus' mission Just a few days ago he had huge crowds following him. They they crossed the sea just to speak to him, just to hear his words. And now they're leaving. Things have got so bad that by verse 1 of chapter 7 that he has to sort of stay at at the outskirts of Judea because the Jews who are there want to kill him. Why is Jesus so unappealing? Why do his words incite this sort of reaction? I mean, after all, in the early chapters of John that we've been looking at, this gospel that we've seen, we've seen Jesus promise some spectacular things, haven't we? A fresh start, satisfaction in life, true satisfaction, forgiveness, a good and lasting relationship with him, freedom from judgment, even himself he has offered. Now, if this was an election campaign and Jesus was a candidate, you'd think he'd be a front-runner. These are big big promises. What's the problem? Well, those of us who've been following Jesus' words in these early chapters of John know that the the gospel that he has declared has a pretext. The fact that the gospel is good news is because there is also the reality of bad news in our world. Truthful news, but hard news for our world to accept. The gospel that Jesus brings is indeed a hard word for humanity. Let me give you four examples of how it is that and how we've seen it be that in these early chapters. Firstly, the gospel that Jesus speaks is anti-humanist. Humanism is a philosophy of of how we see ourselves as human beings, that we as humanity, both individually and corporately, are dignified, that, that we're capable of making good decisions about right and wrong, that we can think rationally, that we're moving forward, that we're getting smarter, that we're learning from our mistakes. But Jesus says the exact opposite. In John 3 verses 19 and 21, he says, rather than humanity being enlightened and progressive, he describes our thinking as darkness and our deeds as as being evil and we're quite happy that we're in darkness because that way they're not exposed and the light that he brings exposes us for who we really are and we hate it. In John 3 verse 5 and 7 he's talking to one of the the, the pin-up boys, if you like, of the, the human race, someone who's really made it, Nicodemus, and he says, you know, you need to start all over again. The gospel is anti-humanist. More than that, it is anti-religion. 
Jesus again and again has to stand against the understanding of the religious elite of the time, their views of the Sabbath, their ideas of, uh, of faith in God being about rules and legalism. In the end, Jesus says religion is willfully wrong-headed about God. He says that in John 3, verse 10. But in the end, what the Pharisees did and what we as humans do with all religion is what we're doing is we're setting up religion as the measuring stick rather than what God has revealed in Jesus. We assess everything that Jesus says in light of our religion. That's what the Pharisees are doing in John 5. Jesus stands opposed to that. The gospel is a hard word because it is an exclusive word. Jesus says uh, most explicitly in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. He makes clear he's the only way to be right with God, the only way to eternal life, the only way to avoid condemnation, the only way to be satisfied. And finally, it is a hard word because it exposes sin and announces judgment. Jesus, again and again in John's Gospel, is described as a light that shines into the bankruptcy of this world and declares, as Jesus will in verse 7 of John 7, that our deeds are not dignified, but evil is the word he uses. The fact that God has even sent his son, the most, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his son, that shouts out there is a big problem, so big, that Jesus had to come. So what the gospel does is it puts dynamite under the human story and it declares us derelict, condemned. It's not surprising then that given the gospel says this of us, that such a message is rejected and the messenger is hated, as we see in John 7, verse 1. And so at this point, I imagine uh, that many of the people who were around Jesus were thinking, how can we help him? How can we make this, this whole mission go a bit better than it is right now? And you see that with his brothers in verses 2 to 4. At this point uh, of history, we've reached the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was pretty much the biggest feast that the Jewish people had. Everyone was there. It was a great event and if you were within 20 miles of Jerusalem you had to be there, it was the law. So if you wanted to make a name for yourself this is the place to do it. And so given this his brothers see this as the opportunity to turn things around. The crowds have left. Here's his moment to get it back. They're basically saying to him if you want followers, if you want to be a religious leader then you need to give them what they want. Signs. Show them what you've got. Show them your power. It's hard to blame them, isn't it? You know, when the message of Jesus fails to rouse those around us, when the claims of Jesus evoke angry responses, we're surely tempted to sanitise the gospel, to smooth over the rough edges so that they don't miss the good bit. And we do this because like his brothers, we want Jesus to be loved. Now, if the blockage for that happening is the offensiveness of the gospel then surely this is where we need to go to work repackaging Jesus and repackaging his message. And so what we do is we we go back to those things that were the hard word of the gospel and we think, well, how can we sort of get over that hurdle? For instance, the humanist, anti-humanist hurdle, we we start to repackage Jesus in humanist clothing. 
And so rather than we as a human race being totally bankrupt, as the Bible says, without God, without him we are hopeless, the Bible says. We say that what we really need is we need a bit of help, we need a bit of a boost. We're okay but we need a bit of help getting over the finishing line. And you see that again and again uh, by those who would seek to promote Jesus. Where I was in Sydney uh, before coming here, we were in uh, Kellyville and it was literally a couple of minutes away from the biggest church, easily the biggest church in Australia called Hillsong. Now, uh, the more and more times that I visited there over the years that I was there, the more and more I was convinced that this is exactly what they were doing. Jesus becomes the one who enables a person to reach their fulfilment, reach their potential, unlock the power within. You can see how much more appealing that is. Or maybe uh, that's not people's problem. Maybe it's that, uh, this idea that Jesus puts, uh, puts a giant question mark on all religion. Maybe if we paint him in religious packaging then that would work better. Well, any time that a priest, rather than Jesus, gives us access to God, or any time legalism, rather than Jesus, offers us assurance that we are right with him, any time ritual, rather than Jesus, is a way to be close to God, then that is what we're doing. We are painting a false gospel. And to be honest, at this point, this is where humanism and religion are two peas in a pod. Religion is, in the end, just humanism in a dog collar where we steadily take Jesus out of the picture and we put ourselves in his place. We need him less and less and we need ourselves more and more. Or maybe uh, one of the most offensive parts of the Gospel, the idea that Jesus' claims are exclusive, maybe that's where we need to change things, make Jesus more inclusive. And we talk about him being a way to God, maybe the best way, but just a way. And you see this in the, the whole concept of interfaith dialogue where, where the Christian church and, and uh, the Muslim faith get together and try to sort of work out a common ground and maybe that would make us uh, have a broader appeal. So much so that uh, one diocese uh, in the UK and the Church of England, uh, as they were appointing their new missioner, person who would reach out to the entire diocese, appointed a Muslim because there were so many Muslim people moving into the area. And so that's our answer for making Jesus more appealing. Or perhaps we could paint Jesus in non-judgmental packaging. The Jesus who exposes our sin, who announces that he is the judge. And for me, I think this is the number one way people who seek to promote Jesus would repackage him. Because this is the very reason the world hates him, he says, look at John 7 verse 7, he says our deeds are evil and we hate it. And so uh, we, we'd work out a way around that and this takes lots of different forms. An example in uh, recent years has been the watering down of the doctrine of penal substitution. A doctrine that says there's a consequence for our sins, that God is angry because he is a holy God and rightfully angry and that he won't ignore it. But the doctrine that says rather than us taking the force of that penalty, he puts that on his son. He takes the force of the blow. He is our penal substitute. Now if that's true, then it means that we're sinful and it means that God judges. And that's hard. And so if we remove or change that doctrine, then maybe we'll have a smoother run Or perhaps we simply stop using words like sin or the word that Jesus uses, an even stronger one, a word like evil. 
And so the, the human problem is no longer sin, it's that we, we just don't have the skills. We just need a bit of help. There's all sorts of ways that we can repackage the gospel. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we sort of heed the advice of the brothers here in John 7? Well, Jesus tells us what would happen in verse 7. The world would love it, just love it. The world cannot hate you. And the reason he gives in John 15 verse 19 because the world loves its own. If you want the gospel to be appealing, then shape it like the world and the world will love it. Sing off the same hymn sheet. But Jesus says a person who acts this way, like the brothers are doing in this chapter, is a person that verse 6 says is any time for them is the right time, any agenda is right, as long as it works. Take God's unpopular agenda off the table and you'll have a much smoother run. There's a big problem with doing this. Do you see it there in verse 5 of chapter 7? This verse explains why the brothers made the suggestion they did in the first place and why we would do any of these things that we've been talking about. It's quite simple. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They don't believe him. Now for me this is just a killer verse. I mean, uh, you'd expect this to be said of all sorts of other people that appear in the chapter. The, the Jewish rulers in verse 11 who, who say, where is that man? And they're, they're looking to kill Jesus. You expect it of them. Or maybe of the crowd in verse 12 who are sort of a bit speculating into who Jesus is. I like to think of Jesus as a, a good man, some of them say. And others say, oh, I think he's a deceiver. By verse 20 they think he's a madman. You expect it of them, but not his brothers. The insiders. They don't believe him. And the Bible says that unbelief is what lies behind any attempt to repackage, reshape or reinterpret the gospel. It is a failure to believe Jesus' words, to trust God's ways. I mean, that's what's happening in verse 6. We, we assume that we know better than God what the gospel is. And so rather than faithfully speaking about God and about uh, the things of God, We take things into our own hands and the Bible's commentary on this act of unbelief by those who would purport to promote Jesus is very strong. If you've got your Bibles open, flip forward to John 8 verse 43 and 44. The very thing that Jesus refuses to do in this passage, sing to the tune of of the world, is the thing that such an approach does. But even worse... John 8 verse 43, Jesus pushes further. Why are my words not clear to you? It's because you are unable to bear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. The reason someone would reshape the gospel of Jesus, the reason someone would refuse to hear the plain word of Jesus, is because another voice is in their ear the voice of Satan. This is strong stuff, isn't it? Jesus, again and again in these early chapters of John, says he has come to bring life, 
life to this world. But do you see what it says about Satan? Do you see what his job is? He is a murderer. He snuffs out life. Jesus speaks the truth. So many times in these early chapters of John, he's had this phrase on his lips, I tell you the truth, Satan, there is no truth in him. He lies. Take in what's being said here. The Bible says to change the gospel is not a neutral act. It is an evil act that pleases Satan, not God. Because it is a lie. To say that humanity is okay without God is a lie. To say human ethical relativism is okay is a lie. To say Jesus is one of many ways to God is a lie. To dialogue with Islam, Islam and the gospel is to dialogue with lies. To ignore God's judgment is a lie. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings life to the world. It is the great powerful thing that God is using in this world to bring life back to the world, to redeem this world. It's all we have. To lie about that gospel is to snuff out that life. It's to honour Satan. So what's the way ahead? Well, John 7 verse 16 helps us with that. In verse 16, Jesus makes clear what's at stake here. He cites the source of the words that he has said. You see, they're not a marketer's spin, a sort of a PR campaign. They're not speculative philosophy. They're not driven by, by fears. They're not even uh, words of some rabbinic guru. They are the very words of God. Jesus is telling the truth about God and about us. But in order for us to know that truth, in order for us to be sure of it, to have it confirmed in our heart, there is only one way we can approach Jesus. Do you see it there in verse 17? By faith. Only a person who faithfully entrusts themselves to the word of God can know the truth of that word. We make a faith commitment which God fills with the knowledge of his truth. See what it's saying here about the word of God, about the truth of the gospel? It is self-authenticating. God's word is the truth. And so the only way we can assess that truth is to faithfully receive it as such because it is the final arbiter, not reason or history or anything else. Jesus, the living word, doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth, as he says in John 8. And so he can be trusted. We measure all truth by this truth. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that seems unreasonable or irrational, then let me encourage you to think about it rationally for a moment. If God's word, the word of Jesus, is not the final truth, not the absolute truth, then what is? If we take that off the, uh, off the, uh, the table and we, we come up with something else as our foundation, the thing that we measure the truth of something by, what, what are we going to use? Really all we're left with is sort of a humanity's collective idea of the truth, that together we come up with the truth. And in the end that's self-authenticating as well, isn't it? And it fails that test. That's where we get ideas like the philosophy of relativism that has been so prevalent in, in recent decades, the idea that anything is true and something true for you is not true for me. We get to that point because we don't trust each other to tell the truth. But God says, 
If you want to put the truth of Jesus' words to the test, don't measure it by rationalism or relativism or materialism or whatever else. Do what verse 17 says. Obey the words. Listen to them. Put them into practice and you will be filled with the knowledge of the truth. And the Bible says that the only way this can happen is if God himself goes to work in our minds and our hearts. It is by his spirit, the spirit of truth as he's called in John 14, that we can know the truth about God and about ourselves. It is a truth that leads to freedom, a truth that leads to life. And you can't see it with the blinders of criticism or speculation or fear or a false view of humanity in the way. You just can't see it. That's what was happening in that subway in the US earlier this year. The name of uh, the violinist was Joshua Bell, a nondescript person if you met him, but one of the finest violinists to ever grace this earth, playing a Stradivarius violin worth 3.5 million US and yet only seven people stopped to listen. And when it comes to the gospel, we're dealing with that on an infinitesimally higher scale, aren't we? Because Jesus is the finest person this world has ever seen. He is magnificent. He is the risen and living king of the whole universe. And he has the most wonder-filled message this world will ever hear, that this planet will be comprehensively and decisively renewed in him. And he has the most valuable instrument of that renewal, the gospel, the declaration of forgiveness and of new life, new relationship with him. And yet most will not receive him. As John 1.10 says, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. The only possible way a person can see Jesus for who he is can accept the truth of his word is if the spirit of God does what he says he will do in John in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 where he says let light shine out of darkness when he makes his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ this is God's work and so we're left with a choice to make John 7 verse 18 We really have two options. It comes down to whose honour we seek. If our goal is to have the world affirm Jesus, for him to be palatable, to be likeable, then in the end we will seek the honour of the world. As Jesus said himself in John 5 verse 44, he says, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, but don't accept praise from me? And in the end, John 7 verse 18 calls our bluff on this and it says, Such an approach is not even about... God's honour or the world's honour, it's about our honour. But if we are after God's honour, we'll tell the truth about him as an act of faith, an act in accordance with his will because we are sure that God tells the truth and we are sure that God loves our family and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbours more than we could possibly imagine. And we are sure the gospel is good news for them. And we are sure that Jesus is more precious than anything we would lose by telling the truth about him. And we are confident, supremely confident in the spirit of God's power rather than our power to reveal Jesus 
as beautiful and wonderful. Let's pray.